This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. because yesterday was the birthday of my friend John Tobacco, but uh, it's apropos of our next conversation because so many people that work in the world of high finance, they rely, at least in the heyday of the 80s and 90s especially, on cigarettes and coffee to be perpetually stimulated, oftentimes working insane hours, certainly seeming to do insane things. Very, very pleased to welcome to the show Brad Schaefer. He's a columnist, a commodities trader, a musician, and the author of the book Life in the Pits, My Time as a Trader on the Rough and Tumble Exchange Floors. Brad, welcome to the program. Thanks for staying up late with us. Hey, no problem. Thanks for having me. All right. So, Brad, since you have some experience in the Chicago uh, commodities exchanging world, You've got to explain to me exactly how that scheme that uh, Dan Aykroyd and Eddie Murphy at the end of the movie Trading Places pulled off. I've never understood it. I, I still am not sure I understand it. Now, you know what? And I'll tell you why. Because most people in the mar- most people who aren't like in the markets, you know, as as a profession, they always have a, a bullish idea, right? So you always everybody thinks when markets go up, you make money. When they go down, you lose money. But in what they were trading were mythical futures on what they called frozen concentrated orange juice that was actually filmed uh in the gold pit in the commodities exchange in uh the old four world trade center and uh, i actually knew a couple of those guys who were in that scene and uh what they did was the uh everybody they gave the duke brothers a fake crop report and the crop report basically said that there, were, there, there was a deep freeze and that oranges were going to be very scarce. And so right. as anybody knows, 
when things you know are scarce, the price goes up in commodities, right? And all, all commodities are are, um, are just uh, raw materials, right? So everybody thought the Duke brothers knew something because their big broker came in and they started buying, right? So everybody started buying these frozen concentrated orange juice futures, and they just kept going up and up and up and up because you know the Dukes knew something, right? They had their broker and they're buying. What Dan Aykroyd and Eddie Murphy knew was that the crop report, the real crop report, actually, when it came out, showed that there had been no effect from cold. And so there would be plenty of oranges. And so the price would collapse. And so what they did was, as everybody started buying and buying and buying, they became the only sellers. They were the only ones willing to take the other side of these trades. So they sold uh, futures on orange juice at a very, very high price. Because they were the only sellers, right? It was a buyer. It was a seller's market. And then when the crop report came out, the market actually collapsed. And then at the end, what they did was they just closed out their position, buying it back for a small fortune, and they wiped the Duke brothers out in the process. So, well, well um, that's that's as thorough and as concise an explanation as I've heard. And uh, now I am convinced. You, you know, your decades of experience aside, now I am convinced that you actually know what you're talking about, Brad. So, uh, well, that's good. Yeah. Hey, so Brad, tell me about uh, how you got into the uh, trading world. I know late 80s, you're working as an artist and your brother was a trader. How did that result in a career transition for you? Well, actually, uh, Frank, one of the reasons I wrote the book was uh, to explain to people, and I kind of just used my experience as sort of a, you know, as a a whatever, a a test case that... um, there, you know, those commodities pitch, they were crazy. You know, they were the ones you see people screaming and yelling. There was no like recruitment. Uh, there was no recruitment pipeline, right? It's not like a bunch of guys. Like I went to Illinois, University of Illinois. It's not like a bunch of guys came down there and said, hey, how would you like to work in the commodities pitch, right? It's, you know, it's not like, uh, I don't know, like a hedge fund might go to MIT and find, mm-hmm. you know, their, mm-hmm. their whatever. So what I did was uh, I, I got there circuitously. And, you know, I, I was really an artist when I came out of school, but my brother was a trader on the floor in the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. And he, uh, that's the pit, by the way, if anybody's seen Ferris Bueller's Day Off, that exchange that they're looking at, oh, that's, sure. the Eurodollar, that's the Eurodollar futures pit. That's actually where I was. And, um, and so what happened was my brother said, uh, you know, why don't you come and see where I work? I went to the trading floor, you know, I walked in, I was like, this is the craziest place I've ever seen, you know, and, and people were people were making and losing millions. I'm like, you know, this is something for me. Uh, you know, I wasn't making any money as an artist anyway. And, and, uh, so I got my yellow coat, which basically meant I was a clerk, you know, or in the, and in the stock exchange, they're called runners. And I, and really you just, you start off schlepping coffee for guys and then you get a job as, you know, one of the art clerks, which were the guys who stood around the, the outside of the trading pit and sort of were flashing what the markets were to the guys on the phones who were on, with their institutional clients all over the world. And then eventually, if you do well enough, somebody takes a liking to you or somebody says, hey, this kid's got what it takes. You get you, you get uh, somebody like my boss eventually backed me for a seat. And so I ended up trading Eurodollar options on the floor of the Merck. I think I was only like 22 when it happened. And uh, that's kind of how a lot of people got there. You know, the way you got your job then was, you know, somebody would say, hey, I know a guy who knows a guy in the live mm-hmm. cattle pit looking for a clerk. And Frank, the shame is that now that those pits are closed, that avenue of it, you know, that avenue into Wall Street for the average Joe, you know, like you know, just the old state schoolers like me who just had some chutzpah 
and some acumen, those those doors are kind of closed now, which is really too bad because um, it was I, I call it, it the book came about from an article I wrote in the Wall Street Journal a while back, and I right, called and I the floor. It. The, the, yeah, it was the Great Equalizer was the floor, right? Once you got down there, one of the things I loved about it was I stood to my left was a guy who was a high school dropout tennis pro, and to my right was a guy who was a Harvard Law graduate, and they were both equally good at trading. So <laughs> once you got down there, your pedigree, your your you know whatever, your sigma cum laude, whatever you had, all that mattered was did you know how to buy low and sell high, you know? And and that's really all that all that mattered. Like one of the top traders in bonds in the Chicago Board of Trade, which was the sister exchange of the Merck, was had had been like a meat packer uh, before he went down to the floor. I one of the guys I stood next to was a former Chicago Cubs pitcher. Um, one woman was a was an art history major. You know, uh, the guy that I worked with, who was a genius, was a uh, Scandinavian who came over and was a pig farmer in Iowa before ending up down on the floor, you know? So that was uh, one of the things I tried to impart in the book was that, you know, those days, unfortunately, I mean, I, not fortunately, it it happens, you know, it just happened very quickly because of uh, electronic trading. As you can imagine, that's more efficient than a bunch of guys screaming. And uh, that kind of wiped those pits out. Right. And if people are just tuning in, we're talking with Brad Schaefer. He's the author of a book about this bygone era called Life in the Pits. What you just said there, uh, Brad, about digital trading, electronic trading, uh, kind of replacing the role of people screaming in the pit. When did the pit go extinct? When basically that scene that we might see in uh, Trading Places or Ferris Bueller, when did that go away permanently? Well, uh, really, um, if I recall, um, it's in the book. I I think the first electronic trade was a currency trade on a platform called Globex, which was, I want to say, 1993. And by 2017, I think the last certainly the last exchange in New York closed the last, uh, you know, floor that is. And um, I think there's still maybe one or two pits left in Chicago where they trade S and P's, but, but they're all, you know, they're really just standing around, you know, they're trading on their tablets. It's not like open outcry the way it used to be with us. And so it happened very quickly. So really from like 1993 to 2017, this business that had been a, iconic and staple uh, of the financial futures markets and, and options market throughout the had been, you know, there since before the Civil War, really. I think it started in the 1840s. So it happened very quickly. And I think it took some people by surprise. Yeah. Uh, now, yeah. Go you, ahead. You know, you're um, uh, breaking up a little bit, Brad. So if you could just try oh, to make sure you're you're in a, a good area. No, that's OK. Um, if um, if people are of the more elitist mentality, they think, all right, hey, I, I don't want uh, people that were artists or people that went to state school or people that uh, didn't even finish high school in charge of uh, such an important part of our economy like commodities, isn't it better off that it's become professionalized? Talk to those people, Brad. Are the fundamentals of the the commodities markets more secure or more sound now that you don't have basically, as you termed it, the great equalizer, anybody with uh, good instincts and a lot of gumption being able to make these sort of trades? Well, I, you know, part of it is um, when the, when those exchanges closed, I think what the markets lost was certainly from, from the investment side was 
what, I, what they call the Israeli, you know, the Israeli about how they call the tenth man, which is basically their job is to think completely outside the box and imagine the complete opposite that everybody else is thinking, so they don't unfortunately have what happened to them on ten seven, right? And and it, the, there are there have been several hedge funds that have completely collapsed, you know, taking a lot of good people's money with it, you know, because you know, it, people think of hedge funds as uh, you know, they think of them as just rich people's money, but they, you know, a lot of them are, are funded by school, you know, by pensions that are school pensions and, and stuff like that. And like long-term capital management comes in, comes to mind. Those were the most brilliant guys in the market. This is a collapse of a multi-billion dollar hedge fund in 1998, I believe it was. And uh, they had like two uh, Nobel Prize winners on, on their uh, trading floor and everything like that. But what they did was they were so... Uh, they were so um, in, uh, just enamored with their models that they didn't realize that markets are human constructs. And there's an old expression that says market can can remain irrational longer than you can remain solvent. And I think what happens when you come, you lose the human factor. And um, so I, I think there's still risk there. And I just I just think the risks have changed in terms of of just, you know, their personality or they've changed in terms of, of right. you know, the landmines are different. And and again, you know, Brad, if, if there's a way to get into maybe a slightly better area, because you are, you, you are gl- glitching out a little bit, but um, the, 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 in terms of who gets to make these decisions now about when to buy, when to sell oil, coffee, gold, all the sorts of commodities that are pretty important to the whole economy, is it all done by a computer algorithm? Is there any human element in it these days? at all well i mean i trade can you hear me now Is yes better? yes thank you yeah i trade uh over the counter myself i i have been trading using solely electronic platforms really for the past six years you know i just trade my own money and so and and the decisions that i make are sort of a combination of what i'm seeing on the screen but also kind of the way my gut is feeling you know there's the germans have an expression they call finger which means basically intuition at the fingertips and so just over 30 years of doing it, I've just kind of, I've seen, you know, some of these movies before and I don't get fooled by some of the stuff that maybe somebody using a pure algorithm would get fooled by. And, you know, and by fooled by, they just say, if there's a signal, take it. But I say, well, I've seen that signal before and I think it's a false one. So, um, but there are other guys who trade with what is just called black box, which means they just program an algorithm and says, you know, whenever it goes to here, buy it, whenever it goes to there, sell it. And really you can just hit, play and go out and play some golf and just let the machine do it for you. Um, but that also tends to get into trouble because again, markets, markets behave crazy. You know, um, one of the best books on trading ever written was a hundred years. I'm kind of happy that my book came out now because it's a hundred years after what I think is the best book ever written on trading called reminiscences of a stock operator. And, uh, that was written in 1923. And the premise of the book is there's nothing new on wall street. And so the, the modus operandi of trading will change. You know, you go from screaming and yelling to being on over the counter, you know, to, to point and click. But markets are still, in the end, Frank, they're human constructs. And so they will behave irrationally. They will behave at times where an algorithm can't make sense of it. And so I think that's why guys like me who are not, uh, you know, I'm not a programmer. I, you know, I use Excel. So, but guys like me who've just been doing this for a long time have been able to survive and make the transition. 
The um, in terms of the kind of characteristics of what makes a good commodities trader, particularly in the pre-electronics age, mm-hmm. what would you say is the kind of person that makes a good commodities trader? Is there is there a profile of someone that could do the job well? You have to have discipline. You, you there's a couple you know there's a couple of hard and fast rules of trading, and you know it. What again? What reminiscences of a stock operator, you know, and you'll see it in my book as well. There, the, what he says is that everybody and everybody who who speculates is dealing with what they call hope and fear, right? And the hope is that the money that you've made on this trade won't go away, and the fear is, I'm sorry, the hope is that, I'm sorry, scratch that. The hope is that the money that you're losing will come back. And, you know, people always say, oh, you know, I bought more because it's down here. I hope it'll come back. And the fear is that the money you are making, you're going to lose. And so what that makes people do is it makes them sell their winners too soon and makes them ride out their losses. And you have to reverse that. You have to hope that your winners are going to keep going and you have to fear that your losers are going to get worse. So, for instance, if you've got two stock positions, one of them is up $10 and one of them is down $10. And let's say you need money. Well, what you know, most people are going to do, they're going to sell the profitable stock, right? And they say, oh, I'm going to take my profits and, and use it. No, what you should do is hang on to that because that trade's going your way. You have to get out of the loser. And so you have to cut your losers early. And, um, and you have to stay within your risk parameters. If, if you're trade, you know, if you have like a thousand dollars, you don't risk a thousand dollars on a trade, right? You know, uh, you, because you could lose everything. So you have to know how much to risk. And you have to know the moment you get into a trade, you always have to tell yourself, where am I getting out of this trade? And then you react accordingly, right? So for instance, if you have, you you buy something for a hundred dollars and you say, okay, I'm going to risk $10 on this trade, then you know, you're going to get out at 90, right? And you make sure you do. You don't say, oh, you know, it's going to come back. No, you get out because every market, every trade is like, I always say, it's like surfing. You miss that wave, the next one will come. So you have to have the discipline to cut your losses early, and you have to have the discipline to stay in a winning trade. And people get it completely the opposite. And I've seen guys ride losing trades, turn these little tiny losers into huge losing trades. And I've seen guys who, who have a nice trade on, who get out of it way too soon because they're afraid of losing their profit. And then they watch it go kiting 30 more bucks, you know, up against them. And so, um, one of my, one of my, uh, one of my bosses who was a great trader once said to me, he said, you know what, Brad, he said, I'm not a great trader, but I'm a great puker. And what he meant was he knew how to get out of a losing trade right away before it became a, a really, really bad trade. So you have to, I just can't emphasize that enough. You have to have the discipline to let your winners ride and to cut your losses. And it's early and it sounds easy, but it's the complete, I I think people are psychologically hardwired the opposite. Right. And, and it just takes, it just takes years of doing it and doing it until you, you know, I, I, I never, a loss never bothers me. Right. Like if a lot of trades I do, I've got losing trades every day, you know, but the thing is, you know, hopefully the winning trades make a lot more than the losing ones lose. And so you have to position yourself that way.
you have a lot of really interesting and really fun stories uh, in this yeah. book, and uh, hopefully you'll come back and we'll get into more of them. But one I have to ask you about now, because sure. it, I think it really is such a, a dichotomy with which the, with, with the uh, you've described the seriousness of the kind of things that you did as a trader and continue to do as a trader. There's only one edible substance that was allowed on the trading floor, <laughs> and uh, that leads itself to a discussion of what you guys called bombing. What do they allow on the trading floor, and, and what's bombing? <laughs> well, on the Chicago floor, in New York, you could kind of eat a sandwich and stuff like that, but in Chicago, they were very strict. And so, uh, at least when I traded there, you were only allowed to bring gum on the floor. And so a lot of times, you know, people think it's crazy nonstop, but there was, you know, it's just like, a, you know, it's just like any type of a sport. There's, there's a lot of times when there wasn't much going on and people were bored and you're standing there next to guys. Like imagine standing in a subway for eight hours and that's kind of what it was like. And so guys would get bored. And so you, what you did was you took a trading card, which is just like an index card. Just imagine anybody there, you know, anybody just imagine an index card with writing on it and you take a big wad of gum You'd stick it on one side. You'd fold the card in half until it made like a little gum taco. <laughs> then you'd open it up, and so it looked like it was like like a piece of bread with jelly spread across it. And then you'd toss it on the floor. And remember, it's so crowded, nobody could. You know, it's just like I said. Anybody who's been on a crowded subway knows you really can't even see your your feet, right? And so people would stand there, and and usually there was one guy they were targeting, and this guy'd be standing there next to a big piece of, you know, a big open wad of gum right by his feet. And of course, the moment he stepped on it, everybody would shout, boom, you know, <laughs> the guy would look down at his feet and he's got this, all, this card stuck to his like nice new shoes and stuff. He, I mean, we did, we did stuff like that all the time to, uh, to kill time. You know, I mean, we were, we were gambling. We were, <laughs> we were, uh, you don't even want to know the, how how it smelled down there. Uh, no, but I can imagine. Hey, uh, talking with Brad Schaefer, his new book is uh, Life in the Pits, My Time as a Trader on the Rough and Tumble Exchange Floors. It's available on Amazon and other places that books are, are, are sold. Brad, um, one commodity that I think a lot of people immediately realize has an impact on their day-to-day -day economy and on their day-to-day -day lives is oil. I don't know that they necessarily uh, make the connection about how the price of gold, the price of silver, uh, the price of frozen concentrated orange juice impacts their life on a day-to-day -day basis. It's easy to see with oil. Oil and right. gas had been skyrocketing up until about 11 months ago. Now, every week, it seems like gas prices are going lower and lower. There's talk of what OPEC's going to do. There's talk of right. what Venezuela well is going to do, what Russia's doing, and uh, what emerging economies are doing. Where do you see the uh, price of oil going in the near future, and, and what impact do you think that'll have on gas prices and inflation in general? Well, I mean, if you, know, if you notice, oil has been holding roughly around the $70 a barrel range and up. And I, and I personally think that part of the reason for that is that the Biden administration uh, drain the SPR, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, which is usually about, I want to say like 700 and some million barrels. And they've drained it down to, I did the numbers yesterday, it was 49%. And they made an announcement through the Department of Energy that they're going to buy oil every time it gets into the low 70s. So as a trader, you say to yourself, well, the federal government has 400 million barrels to buy. 
right? And so they're going to be doing it on the spot, on the open market. They're going to be buying crude, but obviously that impacts futures prices as well. So I think we kind of have an artificial floor here at the moment, which means if anything, some sort of a, some sort of a crisis erupts or, or suddenly, you know, especially in the summer, if we have people really uh, driving a lot, you'll see the price go back up. And so really, so goes the price of, commo- of uh, crude oil. So goes the price of gasoline. The only real bright spot in the market, I think people will notice that their energy bills have gone up, but not tremendously. And that's because natural gas, which is really what I trade, has been trading at, you know, has been trading at historic lows for about a year now. And that's just because there really you can't there's so much natural gas in the United States. There's so much proven reserves that you can't go outside and stick a, a, you know, put a stick in the ground without getting some methane coming up. So the real saving grace for the U.S. in, in that respect has been our natural gas reserves. And that's why and people don't realize, you know, oil and natural gas don't just make fuel. I mean, every, every piece of plastic you have is a petroleum byproduct, right? Natural gas is actually used. Uh, I, I saw a list of all the of all the products it's used. Everything from like fertilizer to like baby bottles to it's incredible how much. Uh, you know, Daniel Jurgen wrote a book called The Prize about oil, and he coined a phrase called hydrocarbon man. And that's kind of what we are. We mm-hmm. don't realize how much our lives are intertwined. I, that's why I call it in the book crude oil, the most important commodity in the world. I mean, because when push comes to shove, well, you know, and, and it's getting really cold out, do you want to borrow gold or do you want, you know, gasoline for your generator? Oh, yeah. No, I, I mean, I'll, you know what I'm, t- I'm picking. Yeah. So uh, just to, to sum up what, what I think mm-hmm. you're saying about the Biden administration and the strategic petroleum reserve, there are a lot of uh, cynics in our audience and out there in general. And a lot of people say that what you're seeing with the reduction in gas prices right now this is sort of an election year or an election oh, season uh, price declination. And it seems it like you say that this is exactly what the Biden administration is doing. Right. Of course it is. But the problem is that, you know, they have, you know, you can once you drain the, the SPR to a certain amount, you have to start buying it back. And once you have to start buying it back, everybody knows that the biggest dog on the, on the block has got to buy it back. Right. So you're not going to you're not going to give it to them, right? You're going to, your traders do. You're going to wait and see where the market goes. And it's, it will probably, I really truly believe it will go up. And um, I think, sure, certainly that was an electioneering, uh, that was an, an electioneering ploy for the midterms. Uh, that's when it really started. And your, your viewers, or, I'm sorry, your listeners might be interested to know that when Donald Trump was president, he tr- he suggested buying back and filling the SPR when oil was trading in the low 20s. Right now, mind you, uh, Biden now is trying to buy it back in the high in the mid 70s. Right. And he said we should really fill it up now while that, you know, you know what, you know, take advantage of these low prices because of COVID and the economic shutdown. Right. right? People weren't. And the Democrats blocked it and they called it. I think Chuck Schumer called it a three billion dollar subsidy to big oil, which is the stupidest thing I've ever heard when you consider they were working on a trillion dollar stimulus package. So (laughs) so to deny the president to deny this man, you know, and listen, I'm no. Look, I, 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 I have like the Ben Shapiro view of Trump, good Trump, bad Trump. You know, when he does good things, I like it. When he does bad things, I don't. But one thing he did get right was he wanted to fill up the SPR. He wanted to, in his words, top it off. And they would not let him do that. And they didn't want him to do that because they just wanted to deny him a political victory. Mm-hmm. But it was a victory for the country. Right. You know, I mean, exactly. You know, exactly. It, it's, the, the SPR is there in case 
you know, the, the, you know, what hits the fan. It's yeah. not there just to turn on and off to try and, you know, tweak the gas price, uh, the gas price here and there just to try and get a couple extra points and, you know, uh, on the electoral college. Or Brad, whatever, so. I, I have to, uh, I have to end it there. Really enjoyed the conversation. Hopefully we can chat again. Thanks, Frank. Appreciate it. Brad Schaefer. If you want to check out his book, it's called life in the pits and that's pu- published by post Hill press you can check it out and uh, get it on amazon or anywhere else 800-848-9222 800-848-9222 straight ahead